the Eureka Podcast Network is literally days away from launch. You will be able to download a free app and have all of the network podcasts right at your fingertips, including my new shows, Here Lies, an audio tour of historic cemeteries, rustic rituals, affirmations and meditations for country folk, Queens of the Minds 2, and more. Eureka Podcasts. Y-O-U-R-E-K-A. Because this network is yours. John W. Davidson, Virginian, was preparing himself to sit down for a Christmas dinner with his family. Oyster and chestnut stuffing and a large wild turkey were waiting on the table, filling the home with the most delicious scent. His children rushed to the table, excited to eat the beautiful meal. There was a knock at the door. The Davidsons were not expecting any visitors on this holiday evening. At the door stood a rider carrying a post for the first lieutenant. The post carried the news that Charles Stone and Andrew Kelsey of Clear Lake, California had been murdered by some of the native Pomo men that they were holding in captivity. John Davidson sat down at the table, staring at the letter, forgetting about the turkey and oyster and chestnut stuffing. Davidson knew Andrew Kelsey from his association with the U.S. Army Captain John C. Fremont during the initial U.S. invasion of the territory that would soon be called California. Someone would pay for this. On the afternoon of the day after Christmas, 12 hours had passed since Davidson had received the news of Kelsey and Stone's murder and Lieutenant Nathaniel Lyon was getting ready to begin a 70-mile journey north. Lieutenant Lyon led a detachment of 22 men from a regiment of the U.S. Army's 1st Dragoons. For three long days, the militia of determined white men moved through dense brush and grasses that were as tall as them. The men were rowdy and often drunk as they rode through the hills of towering oak trees making their way to Clear Lake. The mission, retaliation against the native Pomo people, and the white men's hearts were set on extermination. Queens of the Mines features the authentic stories of gold rush women who blossomed from camouflaged, twisted roots. This is the final chapter for season one, part two of three in this chapter. Today, we will continue the story of the Queen of Preservation. I am Andrea Anderson, and this is a true story from America's largest migration, the Gold Rush. The preceding episode features stories that contain adult content including violence, which may be, well, will be by far the most disturbing episode yet. 
to our listeners or secondhand listeners. So discretion is advised. Chapter 10 The Queen of Preservation Part 2 Just south of Calistoga, Clear Lake Wapo, men and women were going about their daily life inside their large village. When they woke up that morning, they had no reason to think that it was not just another typical day. They were unsuspecting of the approaching cavalry. On a typical day of battle for brave Wapo men, the Wapo warriors would have painted themselves with black, red, and white paint and wore large bird wings in their hair. Yet, they were left surprised when, on that non-typical day, Lion and his men bombarded the village, killing 35 Wapo people with open fire. Then, they just left. General Smith of the First Dragoons believed in collective punishment. Smith declared the California Indians who committed the murder on Clear Lake must be chastised. Collective punishment is a form of retaliation, where a suspected perpetrator's family members, friends, acquaintances, neighbors, or even an entire ethnic group is targeted. The punished group may often have no direct association with the other individuals or have any control over their actions. Smith was not only referring to the individual killers, but the whole tribe from Kelsey and Stone's Ranch. And that particular tribe knew there was no such thing as justifiable homicide by an Indian, and they had already fled into the hills towards Oregon Territory. The posse headed for the Cyrus family ranch to recruit more men to join in on the battle ahead. At the Cyrus ranch, the soldiers attempted to convince the settlers in the locality in assisting in running off the natives of the area. The locals absolutely refused. These farmers counted on the labor of the California Indians and they believed that the native people were a true advantage for the Napa Valley's colonial economy. One man declared, if we treat them kindly and pay them fairly, they're quite pleasant. Defeated, the band of vigilantes left. They would handle the job themselves. For weeks, the posse chased after and attempted to murder any natives that crossed their path. North of St. Helena, there was a large rancheria. It belonged to Henry Fowler and William Hargrave. The militia intruded upon the rancheria and rapidly destroyed the local Wapo people's property. They burned their lodges and sacred spaces. They shot at least 15 of the local Wapo people and before they abandoned the scene, they sabotaged the survivors' supply of barley and wheat leaving the bodies of slain children, women, and men in their wake. That rancheria is now known as Human Flesh Ranch. 
Next, 11 natives of all ages were murdered as they innocently walked out of their sweat house. Their bodies then burned in their homes. Simultaneously, Samuel, the brother of Kelsey, was off burning more rancherias and chasing men to their death into the Napa Creek. The militia promised to kill every California Indian they found as they passed through Sonoma. The locals were still opposed to the posse's violence and threats, and collectively, they had sent to the governor for instructions on how they can approach the situation. As they waited for word from the governor, they banded together to turn back the cavalry in Napa, crushing the plans for them to cross on the ferry. March 2nd, 1850. Ever since the murder of Andrew Kelsey, a party of men have caused much excitement among the peaceful inhabitants of this place and Napa. At home, Nika's mother was teaching her daughter to sew. They were using the skin from rabbits that her father had hunted to make a blanket. It had been a cold winter. Staying warm inside her tule kotka by the small fire, Nika learned to make clothing from the tule and spent hours assembling jewelry made of what was left of last season's collected abalone and clam shells. The women and children of the tribe would travel to the island to fish and gather more materials this coming summer. Nika's mother promised she would take her along. The men would be on a long seasonal hunting expedition, so Nika would go fishing with her mother, the women, and other children. Nika ran her fingers over the smooth abalone and thought, what wonderful gifts nature bestowed on her family. Anything they could ever need was right there, surrounding them in the wilderness. Six-year-old Nika could not wait for the adventures to come. Daily Alta, California, March 11th, 1850. We had hoped to hear no more of Indian butcheries in California. We hope and trust the U.S. troops in California will prevent further violence. The victims upon whom the sins of criminals of their own color have been visited were, as is usually the case, innocent of offense, and by their uniform, quiet demeanor have thoroughly established a name throughout the portion of California inhabited by them for tractability and usefulness. They were the Indian employees of several settlers in Sonoma and Napa Valley, and for many years they have maintained a relationship of perfect amity with the whites. We can readily imagine why the chivalrous hounds of the Redwoods have concentrated and commenced indiscriminate slaughter of the Indians. The work of blood has not yet ended. Weeks passed, and Lieutenant Nathaniel Lyon had received word of a fishing camp located at the north end of Clear Lake on an island known as Bonopoti, or Old Island in Pomo. Hundreds of Pomo people were gathered there. Lion, who had not yet found Stone and Kelsey's killers, 
believed the fugitives must be there. However, they were not there. The men from Big Valley Ranch, in fact, had run to Oregon Territory. There at Bonopoti, Nika was playing with the other Pomo children of her tribe on the shores. In the chilly water that spring afternoon, the children were challenging one another in a game. With hollow tule reeds, the children would lie on their backs in the shallow water and breathe through the reed to see who can remain underwater the longest. Nika's mother took a break from her fishing to check on Nika and the other children. She scanned the island for them and did not see them. She worried. She looked closer and noticed, near the tule, a collection of misplaced reeds bobbing in the water. She giggled to herself. This woman was incredibly pleased with her life as a parent to this young, adventurous spirit. In only a few days of being on Bonopoti, Nika was learning the landscape and the power associated with its shores, hills, rocks, owls and raven calls, the clouds, fog, angles of the sun and the ways of the moon in the night sky, and all the many uses of Thule. The killings of the California Indians continued on the road to Bonopoti, hanging the men and building large fires underneath their bodies as a warning of what was yet still to come, marking their trail. General Smith had instructed Lyon to negotiate neither for custody of those who had killed Stone and Kelsey, nor for a general surrender. Lyon with his detachment of dragoons, detachment M of the 3rd Artillery, and detachments A, E, and G of the 2nd Infantry arrived in Clear Lake. He and some of his men went to observe the tribe. Lyons saw on the island the natives had some natural protection. It was completely surrounded by the waters of Clear Lake so he sent for two small brass field guns and two whaleboats from the U.S. Army arsenal in Benicia. The boats would have to be hauled overland, and they would take some time to arrive. And as they waited, locals began to volunteer themselves for this murderous expedition. When the artillery arrived, the white men moved in just two and a half miles from Bonopoti, setting up camp at Rodman Slough on the night of May 14th, watching from across the lake. The troop saw the people gathered on Bonopoti about 300 yards from the shore of the island. The Poma women and a few of the men were performing in ceremony giving thanks for the creation of the world and for the continuation of each day. The women wore their clamshell necklaces and dresses and the few elder men that had stayed on the island rather than join the seasonal hunt were in fox and deer regalia. They played the cocoon rattle, double-boned whistle, flute, 
clank drum and rattle, they were doing a feather dance. To the white men who witnessed this ceremony, the sound of the rhythm of the drums had so far in their life only meant one thing. It was march to war. And the brainwashed white men assumed that the tribe on the island was harboring those who had slain Stone and Kelsey and preparing themselves for an epic battle. A silly assumption, really. At the time, three separate languages were spoken in the four different California Indian groups that lived around the lake. And the Pomo from Big Valley Ranch and the Pomo at Bonopoti were not even familiar with each other. Nor did they speak the same language. The song ended, and the Pomo people let a loud, oh, of release at the end of their dance, startling the white men who watched them. Are you enjoying the podcast? Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. If you would like to support the podcast, consider purchasing some of our brand new merchandise. There are hoodies just in time for fall, t-shirts, tanks, totes, coffee mugs, water bottles, blankets, fanny packs, now available on the store link at queensoftheminds.com. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Columbia Mercantile 1855. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is creating Eureka moments for every shopper. At first glance, it would appear a living museum until you look closer in the clever Gold Rush era aesthetic. You will find a treasure trove of gold standard products for your modern life. Now more than ever, locals are discovering the amazing, reimagined, real working Gold Rush era general store. And Teresa, the owner, has not changed or increased the prices since COVID began. Right now, you can find the artwork by Sarah Ann Graham, inspired by Queens of the Mines, on display at the Columbia Mercantile 1855. And if you cannot get to the store, you can check her out at Sarah Ann Graham. That's S-A-R-A-H-A-N-N-E-G-R-A-H-A-M.com. Thank you, Sarah. I truly appreciate you. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is located in Columbia State Historic Park at 11245 Jackson Street in the Old French Quarter. It's a great place to keep our local economy moving. And at a time like this, it's truly important to shop local. And the Columbia Mercantile 1855 is friendly, welcoming, and fairly priced. They accept SNAP, EBT, and they are open from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. daily. Okay, back to the story. In the dark hours of the following morning of May 15, 1850, Lyons infantrymen loaded themselves into the whaleboats, packing alongside them the cannons, weapons, and ammunition, and they quietly crossed the water. They moved towards the northern rim of the lake and then split, covering the northeast and west shores of the island, positioning themselves in a crescent, patrolling the shores and 
closing off any route of escape in every single direction. At the break of dawn, from the south end of the island, from his boat, Lion opened fire on the village, followed by shots fired from the northern shore. Six-year-old Nika and her mother were tending to the morning fire when they heard the first shot. Nika gazed at her mother in a sheer look of terror. They started to run away from the sound to the southern shore and as they did, a cannon was fired from the south. Panic set in. They realized they were trapped and the moment was ripe for negotiation. One of the native men threw up his hands and tried to approach the men. And without hesitation, Lion shot him to death as well as the man standing next to him. The posse took the bodies to be hung. There would be no negotiating. The soldiers gunned down the fleeing women and children of the tribe. Captain Lyon ordered his soldiers to follow the escaping Pomo into the thick reeds surrounding the marshy waters and pursue and destroy as far as possible. The few elder men that remained on the island while the others were away hunting fought back courageously, but the fight did not last long. The brave men were captured and killed with sabers, baronets, hatchets, rocks and bare hands, some tied to trees and burned alive. When Nika and her mother approached the shore, Nika saw her friend with her father who did not go hunting. He was digging a large hole in the bank of the river for the two to hide in. Another friend of Nika's was also escaping to the water with her mother and as they started to swim, Nika saw them both shot and killed. In the shallow waters, the hunters were using sabers to take down anyone they found hiding in the tule. Captain Lyon said, the island became a perfect slaughtering pen. On the shore, Nika's mother was nearly hit by a bullet. It came so close to her and with a mother's instinct, she dove for the water as if hit, taking Nika down with her. She laid in the water with Nika underneath her. In a short series of miraculous moments, played out to Nika as if in slow motion, her mother moved her hand under the water, picked a tule reed from the lake floor, and put it into Nika's hands below the surface of the water. She whispered to her daughter, How long can you go, Nika? You are good at this game. Show me. Nika looked her mother in the eyes. She understood. She put the reed in her mouth and went below the water. On the island, the massacre continued. Infants were being murdered by a practice commonly used by the U.S. soldiers and militiamen of the 19th century. It was called braining. The babies' heads were smashed against tree trunks or under the boots of the white men. An elder woman hid under a bank covering herself with the overhanging tulis. 
From her hiding spot, she witnessed two white men approaching the store, guns high in the air. And on the end of their guns hung a little girl. They threw the child's body in the water and walked away, and this continued. More men approaching in the same manner, young children hanging at the end of their weapons, their small, innocent bodies thrown into creeks. Nika had weighed not much more than one of the cannonballs that tore through the people like a boulder through willows. Nika was still hidden, tucked under the breast of her mother, under the bloody waters. Crouching beneath the water beside the bank, she sipped air through a reed to maintain her life. Her mother, acting as if she was shot dead, remained still. The two fooled the men around them for hours, as their old world was being erased and washed over in blood. A young boy who was a friend of Nika's ran with his mother and siblings. Right in front of his eyes, the soldiers shot his mother, and the woman fell to the ground, her tiny baby in her arms. The little boy stood over his mother, shocked and scared, and she shooed him away, telling him in Pomo to climb up into a tree and wait, and he did. From the high branches, he watched in disbelief as soldiers ran about the camp, stabbing boys and girls and shooting men and women. His mother on the ground below him was dying, but still not dead. And she continued to tell her son to stay quiet. She laid there holding her little baby in her arms, moaning in Pomo, oh, my babies. She was not quiet enough in her cries, and two white men heard her. They came running towards the mother and her small child, and the young boy watched as his mother and sibling were both stabbed, their bodies thrown over the bank into the water. From the tree, he saw a man dying with a young boy in his arms. The soldier approached the man, finished him off with his bayonet, and kidnapped the child. It would be known as the Bloody Island Massacre. Benjamin Madley said in his book, In American Genocide, that there were not less than 400 warriors killed and drowned in Clear Lake, and as many more of squaws and children who plunged into the lake and drowned through fear committing suicide. In all, about 800 Indians found a watery grave in Clear Lake. Hours and hours passed since the last gunshot, and eventually everything was quiet. No more footsteps of the soldiers, no more cries, no more gunshots. It was silent. Nika's mother opened her eyes and looked around, seeing it was all clear. She lifted Nika from under the red water. Blood was everywhere, and everyone was dead or gone.
my deepest, sincere apologies for what has happened to each and every member of all California Indian tribes and your ancestors. You and they do not deserve this. There is an African proverb, and I'm reminded of it often while reviewing the history of the United States and the indigenous people. It says, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Until recently, historians and the public have dismissed conflict history and important elements that are absolutely necessary for understanding American history have sometimes been downplayed or virtually forgotten. If we do not incorporate racial and ethnic conflict in the presentation of the American experience, we will never understand how far we have come and how far we have to go. No matter how painful, we can only move forward by accepting the truth. Frontier pioneer Eliza Inman wrote in her journal in 1843, if hell laid to the West, Americans would cross heaven to reach it. And it looks like she was right. I'm Andrea Anderson. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let's meet again next time when we continue the story of Nika, the Queen of Preservation, Chapter 10, Part 3. Queens of the Minds was written, produced, and narrated by me. The theme song in San Francisco Bay is by DBUK. You can find the links to their music and merchandise, as well as the links to all of our social media research and brand new merchandise at queensoftheminds.com. Check it out. We have hoodies just in time for fall and many, many more tricks and treats. Please go check it out. We are gathered here today for Here Lies, an audio tour podcast that guides you through the fascinating lives of the residents of the historic Gold Rush cemeteries in California, and I want you to know their stories. I am Andrea Anderson, the hostess of Queens of the Minds, inviting you to tune in to Here Lies on the Eureka Podcast Network. Now, go in peace and serve the world.